0: This episode is supported by Engineers Without Borders UK. Engineers Without Borders UK leads a movement to promote a globally responsible mindset in the engineering community. So how do they do this? They work to change how engineering is perceived, to attract and inspire a diverse cohort of future engineering talent into the industry. They embed the principles of global responsibility into engineering education in schools and universities around the world, so that future engineers can deliver engineering for good. They provide pro-bono engineering support for communities delivering projects to improve access to water, sanitation, clean energy and innovations for the built environment. If you want to get involved in this amazing organisation like Brittany Harris, you can find out more from their website www.ewb-uk.org, where you can sign up to the newsletter and keep up to date with all the activities and opportunities currently happening. You can also join in the discussion on Twitter at @EWBUK. Graduating from the University of Bristol with a first class civil engineering degree in 2015, Brittany Harris has done more in four years than some engineers do through their entire career. From the outset her focus has been on applying engineering to the water sector, from engineering with elephants in Kenya to working with a small fishing village in Peru that back in the 1950s had the most advanced infrastructure in South America. That was until the Peruvian military revolution saw systems abandoned, leaving behind a community without adequate water or sanitation. Providing sustainable solutions to meet these infrastructure challenges is why Brittany became an engineer, and she wants to encourage other professionals to do the same. Her passion and dedication led the Institution of Civil Engineers to select Brittany as its ICE Superhero for Water in 2018, giving her the catchy moniker of Water Woman. Most recently, Brittany has turned her attention to co-finding Qflow, a company set up to tackle the environmental impact of construction sites using sophisticated software and artificial intelligence. Brittany, welcome to Engineering Matters. Thank you. So can you tell us why did you become an engineer? Why did you study civil engineering in the first place?
1: Well, I, I didn't originally intend to be an engineer. When I was 16, I was dead set on going into musical theatre. Not sure entirely what happened there, but I I couldn't leave science behind. I really, really loved science at school, but I didn't want to spend my time in a lab. So I started looking at how I could apply science to really have a positive impact in the world. And a teacher at school said, have you thought about engineering? After school, I went to work in Uganda uh, with a charity, and it was there that I really saw the impact of not having civil engineering, the roads were horrendous, the um, telecommunications were um, non-existent and water and sanitation access was just abominable. So coming back to the UK, I realized really what I wanted to do was support people in getting access to those really basic amenities that enabled them to thrive in life. And what does that? Civil engineering. And so I went to go study civil engineering at Bristol University. I remember the first day um, that I walked into Bristol University and we got introduced to um, our our course, and there was a representative from Engineers Without Borders Bristol, so the branch of the student branch there. Um, And I instantly latched on to that organization and was involved with them from day one. Um, And everything I learned throughout my time at university, I was constantly thinking, how do I apply this to help people have a a more efficient, more sustainable life, a more effective, more powerful existence? And I think that's definitely something that just sort of followed me around. Um, I know not everyone at university felt that way. And I think lots of people got very disillusioned with the course um, because they got bored of finite element analysis which I can completely sympathize with um, but having that purpose-driven approach made getting through
0: some of those slightly more challenging times really really easy. And so Engineers Without Borders you kept your relationship with them didn't you? So tell us about what happened after you graduated.
1: Yeah so Engineers Without Borders they run um partnership programs where they connect to a charity abroad that needs very specific engineering skills to help them achieve a project. Um, I took part in one of the last three-month programs. They now only run six- to 12-month ones. Um, So I got sent to Peru to work with EcoSwell, uh, which is a charity supporting a small fishing community in Lovitos. The challenge for them was that it, it was... A British petroleum outport. Um, so there was huge, huge booming oil industry in this tiny fishing community. And so they had a huge flood of cash to really develop their infrastructure. So they had brilliant roads, they had a huge desalinization plant supporting all the oil workers. Um they had the first cinema in all of South America was in this tiny village. And if you go there, you can still see the footprint of the raked seating of the cinema. Absolutely bonkers, because it is now such a, a tiny, un, un, unassuming place. Um, but one thing that that legacy, one legacy that was left when the British oil uh, industries got kicked out during the sort of civil um, coup, in the seventies was that they left a water flushing sanitation system. But the desalinization plant got shut down and stripped for parts. And so there was no reliable water access. To use water conveyance for human waste, which is what our Western systems use, Um, but they still had this system going. So they had no treatment of the waste, um, no real access to the reliable access to water to move that waste away. Um, So it was all pooling on the beach and flowing into the sea, which was affecting the local uh, fishing uh, industry, but also the growth of the surf tourism industry, which is one of the main. economic incomes for this community.
0: And this has been a long-term decline, hadn't it? So since the um, revolution or coup where Peru did expel the international oil companies, the retention of the, the land and the ownership of different parts of the country meant that over maybe 50 years, it's been that long, hasn't it, mm-hmm. That that the infrastructure slowly but surely became... Decrepit, it wasn't maintained from what I understand.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really sad story in a way for, for this community to go from such um, extravagance, such opulence in terms of infrastructure access to this very slow degradation to somewhere where it really can't support itself. So the land went back to the municipality um, and the municipality gave some of that to the fishermen and they now have the fishing community. Um, The municipality there does supply water, but it supplies it for two to three hours for two to three days a week. And that is not regular either. So it's not consistent at what time. So the way the community access their water is they have these huge uh, oil drum type containers where they fill that up with water when the taps get turned on. And if you're not home when the taps are on, if you're out fishing, you have no water for the week. Um, And they then use that to flush their toilets. So they're wasting this really, really precious water resource on trying to convey their their waste away. Um, And it's that inappropriate application technology or... They only have part of the chain. That's the real problem. The The complex infrastructure that we run in the West relies on the entire chain working. So it relies on having reliable water. It relies on having waste treatment. It relies on having a um, consistent conveyance system so the pipes don't have loads of cracks in it. And they just don't have that in this community anymore. The water's unreliable. The pipes are cracked. There is no waste treatment. So it's actually causing a severe health hazard but it's also costing them time and money, um, throwing water literally down the toilet. Theoretically, the water is conveyed from the houses, uh, the wastewater is conveyed from the houses to these storage tanks that are meant to be pumped out weekly. In the three months that I was there, I never saw one of these tanks coming to take the waste away. Um, We're also not sure what um, condition those tanks are in so they could well be leaking that waste water. There are these huge waste ponds of raw sewage on the beach where either it's because the pipes have cracked or because the tank is no, is overflowing and um, that you're actually getting open pooling of waste water um, which is a, a huge hazard not only for the people around there but also the animals that act as uh, what we call vectors. So they, they carry the, the bacteria from that raw sewage to other parts of the community. And obviously, the kids pet them and that kind of thing. So it's really dangerous in terms of a health aspect.
0: I'm really interested to know what uh, people thought, cause you were there for three months. So how do people in Lobitos feel about uh, the, the situation in terms of the sanitation? It's
1: very mixed. Um, there are some people in the community who don't even have a toilet in their houses. So part of what I did out there was a a comprehensive survey of the community to understand what the current state of sanitation access was. Um, And there was a surprising number of people who were having to use open defecation as a way of going to the toilet Um, so they would walk out the back of their house or sort of shack over the side of a hill in the dark and just go to the toilet there and then come back Um, and for them it was incredibly humiliating um, exposing particularly you know to potential wildlife at the night as well and they didn't like talking about it I think that was one of the most heartbreaking things that um, I experienced out there was talking to this a young girl who she must have been about 25 um and I asked her you know where do you go to the toilet and she sort of looked at me and she said I go to my mum's house and I was like where does your mum live she's like on the other side of the village and I was like you walk to your mum's house every time to go to the toilet and she just looked at me and said no I go over the hill and she just really didn't want to um admit the sort of humiliation of not having access to basic sanitation Um, so when i went out there i completely believed um or had this preconception that alternative sanitation solutions weren't going to work we were going to have to fix the existing one because they you know they'd gotten used to having water flushing toilets and that's what they expected they expected this western style Um, and that is the case in a lot of um communities where volunteers go out to work with with Developing communities, and they say we need a sanitation solution. We want the Western version where we have water flushing toilets, no matter how inappropriate it is for their for their water access. Um, but this community really surprised me because I said to them that you've got you've got this system. It's water flushing. It's it's a Western style. You know, you know it's not working. And they said, yes, it's not working. We hate that we throw expensive water down our toilet to move our waste. Um, we hate these huge sewage ponds that are growing on our beach and affecting our economic situation. We just think it's ridiculous and we hate that we're stuck with this system but we don't have anything better. And so I ran a few workshops and I said, look, these are your options. Um, and I put forward this alternative, which was a dual vault composting toilet. Um, the idea of this is all the treatment happens in the toilet itself, so there's no external waste treatment system, which is very expensive, um, and there is no water required. So you just use local materials to improve the carbon content because um, human waste is very nitrogen-rich, and you need a bit of both for it to break down. So you use you know, dry leaf matter, tuck that in, and it, it treats itself. So they eliminate this demand on water, but you also get a really rich, nu- nutrient-rich compost. One of the other things the community was obsessed with was reforestation. So I should clarify, Lobitos is a desert. It is purely sand. There are flash flood river basins that have some sort of silty sediments in, but there is very little um, nutrient content in the ground that will enable growing of fruits and vegetables and trees. So the idea that their toilet could suddenly provide them with this access to trees and crops was just like so exciting for them and something I completely hadn't even thought of before I got out there and asked the community and that completely affected the way that I approached all engineering moving back to the UK as well was this idea that we come to every single situation with a perspective with our own pair of glasses that we look at the world through and we say this is what we expect to happen. But if you take the time to ask as many people as possible, see their perspective, understand their real needs and their real desires, it completely changes or can completely change what you originally thought was the right solution. And so we went from trying to find a way to improve their water access and fix their existing system to throwing that out the window and coming up with a completely new solution that was really scalable, far lower cost, um, and was able to be implemented in increments as opposed to having this
0: huge upfront investment, which was prohibitive for that community. I'm going to ask you about how that went. Uh, However, I just I want to ask about the existing situation in terms of the municipality and the water provision, because I understand you saying that um, it's not appropriate to try and fix what's there but why hasn't the local government invested or the local water authorities invested why has it just been abandoned
1: yeah it's a hard question it's while we were out there we did engage with the municipality as much as possible um we went and sat in their offices waiting for a meeting um and if you caught them on a good day you might get some idea of some potential future option. We know that this municipality receives a huge amount of money from the current oil industry that's there um, and that money should be being invested into the local community providing roads and water infrastructure and all of these things. But in the... I think coming up to five years that ECOSWELL have been there, they've not seen that come to fruition. Whatever is happening with all that money that's coming from the oil industry, it's not the benefits are not being realised by the community at this time. And so although ECOSWELL's initial approach was to try and fix the sanitation solution to put in place this um, elaborate treatment plant, the capital investment required to actually do that was huge. And the municipality were not going to help contribute to that they sort of very quickly found out that they weren't going to put money towards it. So th- there were two things that ECOSOL wanted to do. One was um, improve water access, which could have been through Um, But there are uh, municipality plans to improve the water access. So they, they are currently waiting for the municipality to put that in place. The other thing that ECOSOL wanted to tackle was the water treatment, the wastewater treatment. Um, and there are... They have not been able to access any plans from the municipality that says they're going to do that. So they did have this elaborate plan of settlement ponds and a clarification system to improve the wastewater treatment so they weren't discharging raw sewage into the sea. Um, that was the thing that had the very high capital cost. And so moving to this alternative sanitation solution is now um, more on their sort of achievable uh yeah product development part of yeah. that makes sense. And just,
0: and just what what's EcoSwell's interest in this particular location? Why did they
1: it's um it's very romantic. <laughs> so the boys who started EcoSwell, I say boys, they're grown men, um, but the guys who started EcoSwell, they, they went to Loythos to go surfing. They're all surfers. Um it has some of the best surf in all of South America in this tiny community because of the point breaks that exist on this beach because of the reefs. And they fell in love with it. I, they literally just fell in love with the community. They would come up from Lima. It's a huge, huge journey. Um, I've done it. It's a good 12 hours on a bus. It's not comfortable. But yeah, they, they fell in love with Lobitos and they realized that there was a, a huge opportunity here in terms of surf tourism that was being capitalized on so surf tourism is a thing there but that the benefits from that were not necessarily being seen by the community and there was a lot of unrest um within the fishing community around this oh there's all these rich surfers who are coming and using our waves but you know we're still living in reasonable levels of poverty um and so ecoswell established themselves to say we want people to come and surf here, but we really want the community to benefit from that. Um, and so that is what they're working towards, is, is being that bridge between the, the value generated by surf tourism and making sure that it gets back into community-led projects where they can achieve things like reforestation and rehabilitation of ecosystems um, and access to
0: appropriate sanitation. So, what happened after you uh, made the recommendations for the um, infrastructure um sustainable uh composting yeah. toilets? Um, what happened then so one of the one of the biggest um
1: potential pitfalls of dry sanitation is that it's not maintained properly, um, so for this kind of toilet system, it requires the user to put dry uh, carbon waste in um, to make sure it composts properly and you need to leave it for six months before you start moving the waste out so there's this composting period. So we didn't want to roll this out on mass, we wanted to build prototypes that the community could use and be absolutely certain that this is the solution they wanted. There have been so many case studies where people, very well-meaning Western organisations have gone in and said, we're going to fund 100 composting toilets, we're going to plonk them in this community and it's going to be great. They're going to have access to sanitation, everyone's going to be happy. What actually happens is that they use them for a few weeks, they start to smell, they don't put enough dry material in, Um, the community don't like them, they either just stop using them, which is the best case, Or they use them inappropriately and actually that exposes them to serious health risks because they're handling human manure if they're not leaving them to compost long enough. So what we did was we fundraised to build a um, prototype unit, which is out the back of the EcoSmart house. Um, They've been running workshops with the community to show them how the toilet works. Um, They have now counted 1,150 poos into the toilet, which is fantastic. Um, They've switched the vaults so... In September, they closed the first vault um, for composting. And in March, they will open that up, um, check that the compost is completely composted, and then they will take that out and start using that for supporting their reforestation program. Um, So with that prototype, we're able to stress test the system in that local meteorological environment um, because humidity, temperature, all affect the rate of composting. And it was really important that we got that nailed before we released it to the wider community so now that they've used that prototype they're happy with it they agree yes it's going to work in this environment yes the community think it's the right thing for them now they're setting up a capital funding program where the community can co-fund their toilet um, and ECOSOL will help them with raising the capital to do that and then it's sort of a pay it back scheme so it's understanding how they they
0: finance this system now. Talk us through what actually happens in terms of whether you need any chemical addition, whether it's an anaerobic process, what what exactly happens in that tank?
1: Yeah so um, composting is completely natural obviously we do it in our gardens. Um, What it requires is a good balance between carbon and nitrogen And that's so that the naturally um, forming bacteria in that waste can break down and feed and break down on on that nitrogen content. So you need oxygen if you want it aerobic. And what we go for is an aerobic composting system because anaerobic is the one that smells. So if you have a biodigester... That is an anaerobic process um, and it's very, very stinky, but it's also very effective and it produces methane. And it's that me- methane's part of that, that smelling side of things. For this, we don't want that. So, um, by adding leaf matter, you're not only adding carbon to the system, which is really important, you're also adding oxygen because it bulks it out and traps oxygen in there to feed the bacteria. So, they need to be kept at a nice sort of toasty temperature of around I think it's 30 degrees I don't remember right off the top of my head Um, and that allows them to break down gently if it gets too hot they die if it gets too cold it's really slow fortunately in Peru it's pretty warm pretty consistently and so actually we found that that has that has worked very well and we'll know more once we open that vault in in March Um, so all, all composting is really simply is carbon nitrogen oxygen and a little bit of heat And over a period, you do get it to break down. So I estimated, based on the temperature and how much carbon we could get into the system sensibly, that it would take about four months to be completely inert compost. To be super safe and to make sure we have no human error in this and that no one can get sick from the compost, we've made a six-month window um and the way that you expand that window is by expanding the size of the vault so we've we've scaled the size of the vault to accommodate eight people using it for six months and then you leave it for six months to compost and that's how we designed it
0: okay so the proof of that and the actual results will be available in March will you be going back or will you just be I watching from a distance to. i
1: think i will be watching from a distance this year but i would like to be going back at some point but unfortunately qflow is taking up most of my time and proves a very long way to get to. Yeah. Um so maybe maybe next year go back for a month or so and see how
0: they're getting on. So let's talk about what else you've done outside of um because that was one of the, your first projects as I understand it. So what happened at, what did you do after that? Um
1: so yeah I mean EcoSwell was my first big um, long-term development project where I was sort of in charge of the engineering side, which is terrifying, but so much fun. Um, But I fell in love with it. So when I joined Bureau Happold um, as a water engineer, graduate engineer, um, I... Kept looking out for opportunities to do this, and they have a, Bureau of have a fantastic um, scheme internally called SOS, Share Our Skills. So you can apply to Bureau of for time to work on a non-profit project. Um, and while we were, while I was in New York, I was approached by a charity called Memusi, which is an educational charity in Kenya. And they said, we have a huge problem with water access in this community. And so the kids are missing loads of school because they're having to walk three kilometers just to get water. Um, and so it's it's causing them lots of problems in terms of education. He said, can, can you do something about it? And I was like, well, we can have a look. So we applied to Bureau Happold, And we got 20 days of funding to work on this project and I put together a team and we, we originally wanted to try and do it all from the UK um, because we knew we'd get the most out of that, but we very, very quickly found there's very little data or information about this very remote uh, part of Kenya. It's right on the border of Tanzania. Um, it's a Maasai community that's settled, and so there's very little sort of maps or any information about it. Um, so... Fortunately we had to go to Kenya.
0: Um, so so, so just, just to go back, just to clarify, so it was when you were um, presenting for the UN, was it, on the Sustainable Development Goals in New York, yes. that you were approached by Mimusi. a local ch- Mimusi. Yeah,
1: Mimusi. It's another charity. It's, a, it's called the Mimusi Foundation. It's an educational charity um, run by a chap called Bernie Hollywood, um, who does lots of
0: fundraising for charities in the UK. So you went to Kenya. What happened next?
1: Yeah, we went to Kenya. Um, Before going out, we put together a survey. Um, So I'm going to admit, civil engineers like to banter the social sciences. Um, I have completely changed my tune since being at university. Yes, they have a lot less work hours, but oh my gosh, writing an effective survey to get really useful data is so hard. Um, It's something I spent almost a month doing in Peru, and then, you know, repurpose those skills to do in Kenya. And the purpose of this was literally a data gathering exercise. How many people in the community, how old were they, what access to water and sanitation did they have, what health impacts were they experiencing because of their current access to water and sanitation, trying to get all this information. And we had some open-ended questions, and something that kept coming up was elephants, and we were like i didn't think elephants were an engineering problem but apparently they are um and so we had to go we had to go and understand this so we went out to kenya and we were we asked the guys to um to walk us along the pipe route so they had this existing pipe that was installed by a safari lodge Um, 30 years ago and the community did not get on with the safari lodge and so they burnt the lodge down. That's a whole other story. Um, As a result, no one was maintaining the infrastructure and so the pipe eventually fell into disrepair and so they no longer had water access in the community. So There we go. What was happening was that the elephants in the dry season can smell the water underground and they go along and they basically dig up the pipe where it's shallowest and they rip it up. So the comu- the pipe started about 500 meters from the community, so not that far. But by the time we got there, the bit where the water was coming out was three kilometers from the community because the elephants had just been constantly ripping it up further and further every time. Um, and they had the community had tried all these things to you know fix the pipe and repair it. Um, and there's a really the iconic picture that we've got of all of these women and children sat at the end of this dry pipeline that's just sticking out of the ground and what's actually going on upstream of that is there are three men with a fire and a bit of plastic pipe trying to heat the pipe and shove it on the end to repair it they didn't get it repaired that day so all of these women then had to walk the extra two kilometers upriver to try and access water and that's just a daily occurrence in this community
0: that's amazing so one of the the biggest problems that they had were elephants digging up their water supply their one and only water supply pipe well and it's just that when you get into
1: engineering you think you know you're going to work on concrete and timber and you're going to build skyscrapers and it's going to be very exciting I never thought I would be
0: engineering out elephants (laughs) <laughs>
1: which is basically what we were doing.
0: But did, did you engineer out the elephants?
1: What we did was we engineered them in, um, which is really, really important. So trying to keep elephants away from water is just a bad idea. It's going to end up with conflict. And while we were out there, we did hear about um, a mother and calf who were killed by someone in the community. We never found out who um, because they do come into the community to access water and it's a threat to them. So there is this conflict between the Maasai and the elephants, which is really sad, and they're really working hard not to have this conflict. But one way that we could facilitate that as engineers was have a separate water point for animals. They need to water their goats and their donkeys, um, and so by separating this out and having a space where elephants, um, giraffe, whatever needs to access that water point can get it away from the, the humans, meant that that was putting a barrier to that conflict there, which is really, really important. So instead of trying to protect the water source from the elephants, we decided, actually, let's just completely accommodate them. And the community were really in favour of this because it, it helped them access water for their goats as well. The idea of watering their goats while they watered was also not that popular um there were lots of donkeys at the water point where we were and we're like this is not very hygienic um so yeah engineering in elephants was actually one of the the biggest things that we took forward out of that project was saying you need to accommodate them as opposed to push them out
0: so you had a water supply pipe into the community and you also set up what a watering hole a watering
1: that's what we put forward so we we our part of the project was to do a feasibility study, understand what the options were and put them back to the charity. Um, So what we produced was a report, which sounds really dull, um, but a a really important report that laid out those options and tried to price up the options for them as well. Um, And we highlighted some key aspects, which included having that separate water source for the animals. Um, The charity are still looking at fundraising for that project, so it's not been put in place yet, Um, but they now know what they can and can't do um to get water access into that community
0: in in a relatively short period of time you're get to do amazingly diverse pieces of work
1: yeah i'm you can you're never stuck for diversity in engineering if you pursue it. you can easily get channeled into one specific thing um and get very very good at that. Uh, Which is fine if that's what you're into. And lots of people love being the expert in one space. But I'm definitely more of a generalist. I love to explore lots of different things and transfer learning from different areas. Um, And so I was constantly pursuing a new and different project. And if that's what you want to do, then engineering is a great place to do that.
0: We talked a little bit about your work with the Sustainable Development Goals and the fact that you are wanting to encourage other engineers to uh, support developing countries and to build sustainable infrastructure. Maybe tell us a little bit about that, considering the work that you did with the
1: uh, World Merit
0: Organization.
1: Yeah, so the Sustainable Development Goals followed on from the Millennium Development Goals and first came across them at university. And it was before they were actually set in stone, you had the option to vote which of the goals you wanted to be taken forward by the u n which was really interesting um and While I was you know working in Peru and I started to realize that engineers, in particular civil engineers, have a huge influence over the majority of these seventeen goals and so when I came back from from New York with world merit, I went to the i c e because I was um one of the president's apprentices under Tim Broyd and I said to them what are you doing about the sustainable development goals and they turned around to me and they said the sustainable what and I was like oh god we we have to go back to the beginning um and so I spent a year campaigning internally within the ICE to try and get them to really get their head around what their role is in building a sustainable future and what they're going to do about it, how they're going to market that for civil engineers. And so I took that forward with the ICE um, and they then made it sort of the center of their 200-year anniversary. And they've now taken ownership of five of the 17 goals that they feel civil engineers most strongly influence. Um, And those are clean water and sanitation, my favorite, Um, then... Uh, renewable energies, um, innovation and in infrastructure, sustainable cities, and climate action, um, and it's those five goals that you'll see dotted around the Institution of Civil Engineers and and hearing about some of the projects that they're doing to really try and achieve that sustainable future.
0: It must be really rewarding to have um, asked an organisation to support something and for them to actually do it.
1: Yeah, it sort of crept up on me. Um, I think. I'd had so many people go, no, Brits, we're looking at digital. Sustainability will come another time. And I was like, "It's, it's it'll be too late. It has to happen now. Um, and it, All of a sudden, someone turned around and said, oh, yeah, we've made them the center of the 200-year anniversary. And I was like, oh, wh- huh? Oh, brilliant. Great. Okay, cool. How can I help? Um, and that <sighs> – The ICE is many things and I think it has a reputation for lots of things as well. So one of the previous president's apprentices said to me, Brits, you'll never get them to move. Like they're so, they're so stuck in their ways. You can do what you like. If it's not on their roster, they're not going to do it. And I mean, anyone, even from my, you know, secondary school will tell you I'm a stubborn git and I will continue anyway. Um, And... So when they did turn around and really latched onto it and embraced it and made it a core part of their future, their future projects, I was just so overwhelmed with how, how amazing, actually, it is a fantastic institution made up of amazing, passionate, incredible people. And no matter how stuck in your, their ways you think someone is, same with community in Lobitos, you think they're stuck in their ways with their Western toilets. No. If if you see an opportunity that really has the has the potential to improve not just you know your life but also the rest of the world's lives, people will latch onto it. And I think the I C really really put themselves out there and is now leading this charge um, among the engineering institutions. And I really am weirdly proud of them um, and <laughs> a,
0: I'm also a member of the institution and I'm pleased to hear that that's what's happening it makes me as a member even though I don't take such positive action as you do it uh, in terms of meeting sustainable development goals I'm really pleased to hear that they're actually taking uh, your advice and taking a lead on this because engineers have got the solutions
1: yeah and I would say it wasn't just me and I, c- I cannot take complete credit for it I mean D. Hubian who led the um, the Global Engineering Congress, sort of putting it together, she put in so much time and effort. And without her actually listening to me go on a little rant, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. And so I certainly wouldn't have been able to do anything on my own. All I did was put forward an idea and keep poking the bear until it moved. Um, actually, the, the bear got up and moved, and that's the really important thing. And there were so many people who were completely instrumental within the ICE and outside of it, who really made that happen. Um, and I think it, it was a team effort. And this is, it's never, ever going to be a one-man solution or one-woman solution um, building a sustainable future. It requires everyone to do just a little bit. And if everyone can do just that little bit, whether that's having a keep cup instead of getting a paper cup, um, it it will make a difference and it already is.
0: I have to ask you, so we're coming towards the end of our interview, but I need to ask you about this sort of change. It feels like a change of direction with the new business that you're involved with. That's all about environmental impacts of construction activity, Um, but it also harnesses some of the digital uh, technologies that we sort of dipped into before. So why don't you, can you share with us what you're doing, what Qflow is all about?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, you're completely right. It's It is a digital thing. I got sucked into the digital revolution, as it were, in a great way. Um, I I worked in consultancy and I saw a lot of sustainability initiatives being driven in that design side, whether it's from the materials that we're using or the way that um, we're improving connection design or or bulk waste movements, that kind of thing. Um, But we design so diligently and we put in these beautiful impact assessments and then we start building. And once we break down, break ground, things start to change and sustainability slightly gets thrown out the window in the face of firefighting that happens on construction sites. And I really wanted that to change. Um, if we are going to be a sustainable industry, we need to be sustainable from beginning to end, from design, from inception of an idea, through the construction process, all the way into operation. And I felt that there were lots of initiatives and startups that were focusing on both that design and operations side and not a lot really tackling the sustainability of our construction process. So I met my co-founder in New York when we were tackling the Sustainable development Goals. So we are already pre-aligned there, which was great. Um, and We started to unpick this, this problem space and we realized regulations there is trying to drive it. But the regulators are also slightly disillusioned by the fact that construction is struggling to meet the regulation at the best of times. And that's in part because of the way that we go about it. We collect data manually. We rely on more and more people to be doing more and more things. And actually, we're not capitalizing on the digital innovations that we have available to us. We are never going to design out humans. That's not the point. But we are able to augment humans' capability to collect and analyze data. So instead of spending their time feverishly putting numbers into a spreadsheet, they can actually start using the insights from that to affect change, to drive building a more sustainable future. And that's exactly what QFO is doing. We're automating the data collection and analysis, and we're processing that using tools like machine learning and AI to provide the engineers on site with the information that they need to make an informed
0: decision. And that's really what we're working towards at the moment. Can you sort of give us a practical example? I know you may be not a specific site at this point, but perhaps just just outline how you how this would work in practice.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we do in our impact assessments is looking at waste waste movements. Um, the Environment Agency is very diligent. At the, mostly um, at tracking where that waste comes from and where it goes. And that's a legal requirement. But the way that we process and handle data on waste on a construction site is with paper tickets. It's a waste transfer note, which is given to the gateman and given back to the driver and then given to the disposal point. And so much data gets lost. It gets written down wrong. You can't read people's handwritings. It comes back to you three months after it's actually happened and you realize it's gone to a non-licensed disposal point. All of these issues are just because we're really, really bad at handling this data. So what we've developed with Qflow is a way of automating that data collection in real time so you have an instant oversight of where that data is going and that's through a combination of apps and databases and then feedback analytics which goes to the engineer and um, so that they can actually see what's what's going on on their site and respond to it so we were working with um, canary wharf and this was actually looking at timber tracking which works in a very similar way So they wanted an FSC certified project, which is a fantastic aspirational thing to target, but very hard to do because it's paper-based. So by implementing Qflow on site, we found that we were able to improve the accuracy of their data collection from 40% of data being collected to 92 in under three months. So that's a huge improvement in the quality and accuracy of the data that they're getting. So they can actually respond when they do get non-conformant material on site Whereas before it was taking them a month to actually find that material and go, oh God, that, that's not FSC, run back on site, take it off and send it away. Now they get that instant alert saying, oh, by the way, a, non, a non-conformant piece of material has just been delivered. Do you want to go in to send that and send it away? And that's now what they're able to do. So that real-time data response is so powerful in enabling projects to respond.
0: And how does Qflow fit into your overall sort of objectives when you first started in engineering? You wanted to create sustainable projects and encourage engineers to make those kind of big changes that would make lives better. How does this fit into that? So engineers
1: love data. They love hard numbers to back stuff up. Um, And for us to build a sustainable future, we have to change our behavior. And behavior change is very difficult, but it is easier when you know why you're doing it and when you have the evidence behind that. And particularly for engineers, we like numerical evidence behind that. And so Qflow is really starting to build up that database of information and evidence that backs up, why are we bothering with all this environmental sustainability stuff? And it's by giving people that clarity and transparency that we believe we will be able to drive that behaviour change in the industry and we will enable engineers to build a more sustainable future.
0: Thank you for coming to talk to us and sharing your experience. That's
1: all right. Thank you.
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Ruby Media, produced and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne. Special thanks to Qualys Flow, the Institution of Civil Engineers, and Engineers Without Borders. Mixing and editing by John Young. Fact-checking by Rian Owen. Rory Harris is engineering out the elephants. Theme tune by JM Sounds with additional music from Pond5. And we'll be back in two weeks with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app. It really helps others to hear about us. Or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, media. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or find us on Reddit, LinkedIn and Facebook.